0: pray together. Father, we do want to see Christ in your word. We want to resolve to know nothing but Christ Jesus and him crucified. So help us, Father, as we open your revelation to us in 1 Corinthians. Open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes God seems so strange to us, and the reason that he seems that way is because he goes about doing things In strange and unexpected ways, ways in which we would never ourselves have chosen to do things. Consider Moses, for example. The children of Israel are led into Egypt by Joseph in order to preserve the nation. They prosper in Egypt, and their number grows into the millions. So the Egyptians enslave them and subjugate them and mistreat them in order to keep them in their place. But through a miraculous turn of events, God causes a boy named Moses to be born. And Moses is this young Israelite boy who escapes the death edict of Pharaoh. And he's adopted and raised in Pharaoh's very own household. So here's this Jew now delivered into great privilege. He seems to be poised and to be in position to press his privilege into God's service. To rescue God's people, at least that's how we would have done the story. That's not what God does. God plans salvation for his people that would only come on the other side of Moses losing all of his privilege. In Pharaoh's household. God will save his people not through the power and might of Moses. God will save his people through the weakness of Moses. Consider Gideon. God tells Gideon to go out and save Israel by destroying the Midianites, 135,000 Midianites. So Gideon blows the trumpet and gathers an army of 32,000 warriors from Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they array themselves just south of the Midianites. It doesn't look good. 135,000 versus 32,000. Looks pretty bad, in fact. And yet before they go out to battle, God says, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. Lest Israel become boastful, saying my own power has delivered me. God says, you got too many people. Tell all the warriors who are scared to go home. And just like that, Gideon loses 22,000 warriors who are scared. God says that's still too many. You got 10,000 left. Tell your men to drink from the spring of water nearby. All the ones who cup the water in their hands to drink can stay. The ones who lean over to drink like a dog have to go home. Guess what happens? Gideon has to send another 9,700 warriors away and he's left with 300 men against an army of 135,000. And now God says, now we're ready. And Gideon marches up with his 300. God shows up and 120,000 of the enemy armies fall dead. 15,000 flee. Consider Abraham. God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants that outnumber the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. One problem. Abraham's wife, Sarah, can't have children. She's barren. Abraham says, well... That's a problem, but we'll just adopt my servant, Eliezer. He'll be my heir. God says, no, it will be a son that comes from your own body. So Abraham says, great, I'll go with the maid Hagar and have a son with her. We'll name him Ishmael. He will be my heir. God says, no, you will have a son from Sarah. God doesn't need Abraham's help. God seeks out Abraham's weakness so that everyone knows what? That God did this. Consider Jesus, the most impossible birth of all time. And it wasn't because his mother was barren, but because she was a virgin. How shall she conceive? God himself will cause her to conceive. And the child will be the son of God. Will he lead an insurrection? And seize the throne of David? No, he will not. He will die as a criminal on a Roman cross. And then he will be raised up by the power of God. And will be preached on in the world and believed on in the world. Until he comes again to triumph over all the enemies of God. And so through great weakness, God will once again show his triumph. Time and time again throughout Scripture, God is doing the same thing over and over. He makes something out of nothing. He pursues human weakness so that He can exalt His own power and glory and might. These are the ways of our God throughout Scripture. That's just who He is. Is it a surprise then That God would still be working in that way even now. What is your expectation of God and the way that he's going to be working among us? Do you think that somehow God has changed his M.O. since Abraham and Moses and Jesus? Do you think that God intends to seek out human strength to accomplish his accomplish his purposes among us? Or do you think he seeks out human weakness to accomplish his purposes? Do you think God in any way wants to rely on human wisdom and ingenuity to save his people? Or do you think he wishes to pursue a path that humiliates human wisdom and pride? I think you already know the answer to this. But here's the question that we constantly have to grapple with. Do we live and do we worship like we know the answer to that question? I fear too many times we do not. We are so self-reliant, so self-absorbed, so fixated on human wisdom and the things that this world admires that we can't see that God is pursuing human weakness so that he can make much of himself. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. Open up 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. Up until this point, Paul has been confronting divisions within the Corinthian church, divisions which were based on their boasting in their favorite teachers. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. They're boasting and the root of their problem is their fixation with worldly wisdom. Those aspects and personal characteristics that the world admires and that the world is fixated upon, that became their fixation and so that's their problem. But the gospel is not a form of worldly wisdom. That's what Paul has been saying to them. And the cross is the center of the gospel. And that cross stands in absolute and uncompromising contradiction to human wisdom. And so Paul brings forth three lines of evidence To prove that the cross stands against their fixation with worldly wisdom. We saw the first line of evidence last week. Um, He says that the cross of Christ is unimpressive by worldly standards. And last week that first evidence was he was saying that we preach an unimpressive message. What we're going to look at this week are two additional lines of evidence. Where he says that God's people are unimpressive. And that God's apostle is unimpressive. You want to know that God's not fixated with worldly wisdom? You want to know that the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, is not fixated with worldly wisdom? Take a look at the message that you preach. That's last week. Take a look at yourselves. That's this week. And take a look at the Apostle Paul. All of it's unimpressive by worldly standards. But you're going to see that it becomes the very wisdom of God because of what God does. So take a look at verse 26. Paul's going to be making the case that his, God's people are unimpressive by worldly standards. And he's going to show them this by asking them to consider three things about themselves and really about ourselves that prove how unimpressive the people of God really are. So I don't usually do this, but I'm enumerating subpoints, right? So God's people are unimpressive. And here's Here's how he shows that. He says, first of all, he says for us to consider God's calling. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. So consider your calling. Paul commands the Corinthians to think about their calling by which he means their calling to salvation. Do you remember in verse 2 of the same chapter where Paul calls them saints by calling? Or chapter 1 and verse 9, where he says God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or verse 23 and 24, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the... Called both Jews and Greeks Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So when Paul talks about consider your calling, he's saying consider your calling to salvation. That's what he means. But he's not just talking about their calling to salvation when he's talking about what it is he wants them to consider. He wants them to consider what condition they were in when God called them to salvation. That's the point. He wants them to remember what their station in life was when God decided to pour out his grace upon them. The NIV says it this way, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. And so Paul's reminding them of what their station in life was when God called them to salvation. And he points out that there was nothing impressive about them. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And when he says, not many of you were wise, you're supposed to be thinking back to what he said before about the wise people of this world, which is a reference to the philosophers, the great thinkers of the day. They are not wise according to worldly standards. Literally, they're not wise according to the flesh, which is Paul's way of talking about The flesh is Paul's way of talking about humanity and its fallenness against God. It's a negative term. You're not wise according to those standards. When it comes to the wisdom that the world values and aspires to, that's not what you were. That's not what you are as the people of God. By and large, you are not wise. Not many powerful. Powerful refers to their position socially. They were not socially powerful or prominent people. They were not influential, is another way that you could put it. Not many were of noble birth. And the word that he uses there is eugenics. It's where we get our word eugenics from. And all he means by that is, it's, it's, he's saying that not many of you were well-born. In other words, you weren't born into the right kinds of families that would be impressive to people, that would deliver to you certain amounts of privilege socially. Not many of you were any of those things. So Paul's saying, think about this. Paul's looking at his congregation. He's saying, your intellect is unimpressive. Your social connections, by and large, are unimpressive. And your family connections are unimpressive. You're a bunch of losers. <laughs> I mean, that's it's what he's saying. Not many of you were these things. By the way, there was a uh, a woman. I think her name was Lady Huntington. She was a benefactor to George Whitfield and uh, uh, John Wesley. And she was a very wealthy woman. And she used to say that I was saved by an M because Paul didn't say not any were wise. Not anywhere of noble birth. He said, not many. She said, I got in. I was saved by an M. There's not many of us, but there are a few. So it's not that there aren't any, but there's just not many. By and large, the people of God don't have these great social privileges. They're not smart. They're not influential. They're not from the right families. They're not upper crust, not by a long shot. They did not themselves, Paul's saying to the Corinthians that they did not themselves possess the qualities that they admired so much in the wise of this age. You see that? Now, I'll say this again. uh, What I said last week. Look to your right and to your left. Be inconspicuous about it this time. Because you need to notice that the people next to you are not impressive, by and large. Maybe if you're sitting next to Joel, you are an impressive specimen. <laughs> but the rest of us, we got a lot of, look of, lot of normal looking people in here. And by that, I mean unimpressive people. We've got some folks in here born into different kinds of privilege, not many. But we've got a lot of folks coming from dysfunctional homes. We've got a lot of folks coming from broken homes. We've got folks from families of modest means. We've got folks from families of almost no means. As far as I know, we don't have any nobility in here. We don't have any senators. We don't have any film stars. We don't have any professional athletes, I don't think. We're pretty ordinary. Some of us eat ketchup on our pizza. We are not wise. (laughs) According to worldly standards. Do you think that God called you because you were an impressive person? Do you think that God saved you because of all you have to offer him? You need to consider your calling. And you need to consider the calling of the brothers and sisters sitting around you. You had no intrinsic quality that commended you to God. Nothing. In fact, the situation was quite the opposite. And it was quite the opposite on purpose. Look at verse 27. You consider God's calling, but you also consider God's election. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing. The things that are. Not many of you were wise, powerful, or well born. And the reason was because God chose for it to be this way. Three times in two verses, Paul repeats the phrase, God chose. This is a basic hermeneutical principle. When you see something repeated like that, pay attention. God chose, God chose, God chose. And in each case, what God chooses are certain kinds of people. And they are the opposite of wise, powerful, and well born people. They are foolish, weak, and low born people. God chose the opposite of what the world esteems on purpose. Why? Because he wants to shame and to humiliate what the world esteems. Why? Look at verse 29 so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God will suffer no rivals. If anything raises itself up against the knowledge of God, he is going to knock it down. Choosing the lowborn and the unwise and the weak is God's way of humiliating the strong. You and I are chronic, compulsive boasters in ourselves. We are prideful. We are self willed. We are self exalting people. We want people to make much of us in addition to ourselves making much of us. And we flatter ourselves that God pretty much owes it to us to do good to us because we're pretty good people. And so when bad things happen, we say, How could you, God? You owed me more than this. Paul's saying, no. There is nothing in you or about you to commend you to God. You have no reason to boast about anything about yourself before God. Nothing. Your salvation is because God chose you, not because of something worthy in you. And God did it that way on purpose. And get this. We know that God's choice of the weak and the wise and the lowborn, we know that God's choice predates your existence. Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God's choice of you predates the existence of you, which means that it's not in any way based on you. It's all based on his sovereign grace towards you. God's choice of you, not on the basis of you, has brought your reasons for boasting about you to zero. You have no reason to boast before God. The whole purpose of God in choosing the weak and the despised vessels is so that he might remove any grounds for anyone to boast in their own characteristics or achievements. Somebody might say, well, you know, you're you're right. I really don't deserve salvation. I have no works or achievements to commend myself to God. But thank goodness I had the good sense to turn from my wicked ways and to trust in Christ. Paul hears that. He says, Nope. You didn't have good sense to reach out to God, even. God had the grace to reach out to you. You can't even boast about your good sense. How do you know that? Consider God's calling, consider God's election. Last thing here, consider God's initiative. Verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus how did you get into Christ? Because of him who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. The text says that Christ Jesus became for us wisdom from God. It's tempting to read this and to think that when he says wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, it's tempting to read that and think that He's saying that Jesus is becoming for us these four different things, but that's the wrong way to read this. Rather, what he's saying is, is that the primary thing that Jesus becomes for us is wisdom from God. And the final three items are defining what that wisdom is. That's how you have to read this. And the point is, the point is this, before you were saved, what did you think about the cross of Christ? What did you think about Jesus. We know what we thought about Jesus before you were saved. We read about it last week. Before you were saved, you regarded the things of God as foolish and unworthy. That's how you regarded Jesus. When you got saved, your view of the things of God was decisively changed. Whereas you formerly regarded Christ as foolish and unworthy, the new birth causes you to regard that very same Christ as worthy and as the wisdom of God for you. You now see how the grace of God has been poured out to you in Christ. And so now you treasure what you used to to loathe. And so Jesus Christ becomes to you wisdom from God, no longer foolishness, okay? And he becomes the wisdom of God for you in three ways. He becomes righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You can now see that your right standing before God is now in Christ and in Christ alone. That's what righteousness is. You can see that your holiness, your being set apart for God and his purposes, that's sanctification, that is also coming to you from Christ. And you can see your redemption, which means to be set free at a cost, which means that when Jesus died on the cross, that was the purchasing of your salvation. It's not foolishness, it's what got you, it provided the means for you to get in. So he's saying, because of your conversion, you can now see the way things as they are. It's not foolish and unworthy to you. Christ is the wisdom of God to you in these ways. But Paul isn't merely concerned with your seeing Christ's work. He wants you to see how you came into this saving relationship with Christ in the first place. Look at the beginning of verse 30. It's because of him. Meaning because of what God did which means we did not draw near to God. No sinner will draw near to God on his own. God draws near to us. Jesus said it this way in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You know what that means? That means that as a sinner, you always regarded the things of God as foolishness and you even regarded Jesus as foolishness. You did not have it in you to come to Christ on your own. That's what Jesus means when he says, no one can come to me. You couldn't do it. You say, well, can't somebody come to Jesus if they want to? They don't want him. Nobody wants him apart from grace. Because Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. If you ever wanted Jesus or the things of God or anything good that God has provided for you in Christ, if you ever wanted it, it's because God drew you in first, not because you, ta da, you just had a good idea that I should come to Christ. You did not go to Him first, He came to you first. He sent Jesus and He chose you before the ages. And then after you were born, He began to draw you to Himself. And it is by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus. Paul says it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You say, well, I have to believe in Christ. Yes, but even your faith is not of your own doing. Even your faith is a gift from God, according to Ephesians 2.8. So you can't boast of your good sense to believe because God gave you your good sense. What did we contribute to our salvation? You know what our contribution to our salvation is? We got lost. We did all the getting lost. God did all the saving. That's it. So verse 31. So that as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is trying to lay waste to anything that we might perceive in ourselves that's impressive to God. There's nothing there. And if you think that there is something there, you have missed the point. Your only boast can be in God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, that Paul read earlier. And he's telling us what it is we can boast in if we really want to boast. There's good boasting and there's bad boasting. You know how you know the difference between good boasting and bad boasting? What you're boasting in. You boast in God, good. You boast in anything else, not good. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Psalm 27, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Some boast in human strength, chariots and horses. We boast, the people of God boast in God. Psalm 1: I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My mouth, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You want to boast, you can boast in the Lord. You know what you can't boast in? Yourself. Paul says in Romans 3.27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. Romans 4.2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Romans 15, 17, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting. Where do I have reason for boasting? In Jesus. Not in myself, in Jesus. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For I will not presume to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Brothers and sisters, what do we have that we have not received? Answer, nothing. Every good and perfect gift has come down to us from above, and we are but grateful and astonished recipients of God's amazing grace. We are beggars. He is the benefactor always. We are never God's benefactor in any way. He alone is the benefactor. We have nothing, He has everything. Our salvation, therefore, is not about God making much of our worth and value. Our salvation is about God enabling us to savor his worth and value for us in Christ. Do you see what Paul has done here? God has picked a people who are unimpressive so that you can see that he is impressive alone. God's people are unimpressive. But look at the next thing. God's apostle is unimpressive. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Here again, Paul's going to highlight three things about himself that demonstrate just how unimpressive he himself was, even as God's apostle. He says, consider my preaching. Verse 1, and when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul's now referring to the fact that he was the one who first preached the gospel to the Corinthians. Go back and read in Acts chapter 18. They came to faith as a, as a result of his personal ministry to them. And he's reminding them that they didn't get saved because of impressive oratory or because of some impressive Worldly philosophy that he brought to them. Neither the form nor the content of his preaching to them could be construed as impressive on worldly terms. That's what he's trying to say. Why? Verse 2 For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How does the world regard the cross? We saw it in chapter 1. They think of it as foolishness. Of course he's unimpressive. The only thing he knows is the very thing that they regard as foolish. Paul is saying that the blazing center of his declaration to them is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that cross became the measure of both the form and the content of his preaching. He didn't want his oratory to stand forth. He wanted Christ to stand forth. He didn't want his own philosophical insights to stand forth. He wanted Christ and him crucified to stand forth. In other words, Paul wanted to get out of the way when he preached to them so that he could make much of Christ. And so Paul's weakness as a preacher becomes an occasion for God to show up in power through his very weakness. What does this mean? It means that Paul's ultimate reliance was not on himself, but on the power of God that operates through God's revelation. This doesn't mean that preachers need to strive to be boring. Okay, that, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that they need to set aside all that distracts from God's revelation when they preach. That's what it means for preachers. And they need to put God's revelation at the center and substance of all gospel declaration. That's where the power is. It's not in our own eloquence. It is not in our wisdom. It's just not. It also means something, not just for preachers that are doing this, what I'm doing right now every week. It means that every one of you, brothers and sisters, you need to rely on the power of God's word every time you bear witness to your friends and your neighbor's. And you don't need to worry about being impressive to them on worldly standards. You don't need to try to conform our message to their expectations of what they think it ought to be. You betray the message when you do that. Don't try to impress them. If you try to please men, you will no longer be pleasing to God. You need to preach Christ and Him crucified. Because that is where your power is. Not in your own eloquence or wisdom or ability to impress. Just give up on it. So that's why Paul is saying, consider my preaching. I'm unimpressive. Look at the way I ministered to you. I was unimpressive according to worldly standards. But he also says not just to consider his preaching, but consider his condition. Look at verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That word there translated as weakness can sometimes refer to illness, but that's not what it means here. In this context, Paul's weakness, I think, refers to his external hardships that he suffered for preaching the gospel. He doesn't describe them in detail, but it's clear if you read about Paul's ministry... In Acts, or even his own description of it in his letters, his ministry was beset by sufferings and hardship. And I think that perhaps this fear that he refers to is due to those things. And in fact, if you look back at Paul's ministry in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, Paul seems to indic- um, it seems to indicate that Paul was very much afraid for his own safety as he preached in Corinth. And so God comes to Paul as he's preaching in Corinth. And God says to him this, he says, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. Don't be afraid any longer. Nobody's going to attack you or harm you. What's it sound like what's going on in Corinth? That God's got to come in and reassure Paul, don't be afraid. So Paul stays on for a year and a half in Corinth, But only after God himself reassured him in the midst of his apparent fear and his trembling. So how impressive do you think Paul looked to the Corinthians when he was in fear for his own life? Second guessing himself. Probably not very impressive. And so the success of his ministry wasn't based on that. Wasn't based on his confidence in himself. It was based on his confidence in God. So he says this in verse four, and my speech and my message were not implausible or persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul saying that what made his preaching effective was not his powerful presence, not his rhetoric. He didn't have either of those things. It was all based on the power and the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Paul preached the word and the Lord, the Lord blessed his word. Why did he do this? Well, he says it here in verse 5. Consider Paul's preaching. Consider his condition. Finally, verse 5, consider Paul's purpose. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul did not want their faith to be based on his powerful presence or rhetoric. Because his presence and rhetoric can save nobody's. God's powerful presence and word can save the world. And that's why he shunned all the accoutrements of worldly wisdom in his preaching. It's kind of the opposite impulse from what you hear from so much gospel preaching today and much gospel sharing today, which oftentimes seems to be a calculated effort to avoid those aspects of God's message that are not impressive to the world. Anybody here ever hear the Babylon Bee? You ever read the Babylon Bee? It's a a satirical Christian news site. And uh, last week, it's a satire, okay? They ran a headline that said this. Eternal God concerned that he might be on the wrong side of history. Dateline, heaven. The everlasting creator God admitted through a messenger Tuesday that he he has recently been concerned that his unchanging eternal truths might end up being on the wrong side of history. The Lord has repeatedly been growing increasingly worried that in recent years his objective morals seem to be more and more out of step with the current culture's ever-changing standards. According to insiders, the almighty creator of the entire universe has been struggling with inner turmoil over the outdated nature of his commands, centering on human sexuality and so forth. The Lord admits he's just not sure anymore, the heavenly messenger explained to reporters. What if human history looks back at him in a negative light in a couple of years? He just doesn't know if he can take that kind of a rejection. Several of the Most High God's attendants have attempted to assure him otherwise, reminding the Lord that humans change their moral standards every generation or so. And in the grand scheme of eternity, human history was but a fleeting speck, but it was no use. God admits that he he has a lot of thinking to do and would appreciate any wise counsel finite humankind would be willing to offer, the messenger said. Sometimes you read stuff like that and it just hurts too much to laugh. Because how many people treat God and his revelation like that? That it's just sort of up for grabs and we can just change it if it doesn't impress the people of this world. Guess what? The reality is the opposite of that. God has not changed. He is not wringing his hands. He is in heaven loaded with power for those who will avail themselves of the message that he has given us to preach. And we don't shy away from it, we don't apologize for it, we proclaim it. And we watch God work. How often do preachers and teachers get the idea into their head that somehow God's revelation is insufficient? And that if we could just somehow get his revelation and our preaching of his revelation to conform to the tastes and preferences of this world, then we'd really be getting somewhere. How many of you have ever heard a sermon where the pastor seemed to do his very best not to preach Christ and him crucified? Maybe you heard a sermon where the pastor reads a verse at the beginning, but then never refers to the Bible again. Instead, he just gives a string of his own inspirational and unoffensive thoughts. How many of you have ever heard a sermon that used the Bible but muted all the references to sin and righteousness and judgment and heaven and hell and a host of all the other items that are essential to our message? So many churches are missing the power of God in their midst and they can't figure out why. And they think that they just don't have a clever enough preacher or they may think that their band just isn't good enough or they think that they're, they need to redesign their platform. If they could do that, that would make everything better. Or if they could get the right lighting or stage production, then the power of God would arrive. That is a fool's errand. We must not sell ourselves out to the standards of what the impresses the people of this world. We need to do the things that make for the power of God breaking forth into people's lives. And get this, the things that make for the breaking forth of the power of God into people's lives are kind of ordinary things. That's why we are always going to focus as much as we can on the ministry of the word and sacrament in here when we gather. That's what we're going to do. We want a liturgy that brings the people of God into the presence of God through the means that he has established for us. That means that we're going to sing the word, pray the word, preach the word, feast according to the word. And we're going to do it so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, I pray that you would do this in us and among us. Would you put in every one of us a dogged determination that no matter what happens, We are going to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Father, I pray that you would forgive us when we think that we are bringing anything to the table to make this thing happen. We bring nothing. Help us to boast and boast in you alone. Father, I pray that you would take our emptiness and show your power through it. I pray that you would do it from this pulpit I pray that you would do it in every Sunday school class. I pray that you would do it in every small group. I pray that you would do it in every man going into his cubicle at his office every week. Father, make much of yourself through Jesus Christ and him crucified, proclaimed by your crucified people. So Father, we ask you to do it.